0: Wittgenstein's rule on when to speak and when to be quiet that's master metaphor number nine coming up Wittgenstein's rule for when to shut up, that at least is a casual way to have it. Uh, we're talking about the master metaphors of the Western world. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, and I'm joined by uh, Reverend Dr. Gregory Schulz to talk about this ninth of our ten master metaphors, uh, Ludwig Wittgenstein's rule for when to speak and when to be silent from his Tractatus. Uh, that is his statement number seven. Uh, Dr. Schulz, welcome back to the conversation.
1: Hi, Pastor Wolf Miller. Thanks.
0: Give give us, if you would, just a kind of a biographical sketch or what we need to know about the person of uh, Ludwig Wittgenstein to get into the text here.
1: Well, thanks. So um, you've noticed and our listeners have noticed that we've been generally very, very brief on biographical background for the philosophers who've been providing the master metaphors for you and me to talk about. Um, Wittgenstein may be... One of the people on the very short list whose biography is interesting enough and tied in closely with his philosophical work so that uh, many of our listeners may just want to read some more on their own. There is a, a rather nice, roughly contemporary book called Wittgenstein's Poker. Wittgenstein's Poker about a, a famous fire poker incident um, back at Cambridge that gives just a very readable introduction at the same time to his life history. And also to his philosophy. So I'd recommend that. Um, Wittgenstein himself was a World War I veteran. He was on the Axis side. And in terms of our metaphor for today, which is from his Tractatus Logico Philosophicus, uh, Tractatus to all of us who have ever read a bit of it. Um, that was actually written in part, large part, while he was in the trenches in World War I and when he was a POW. So there are some glimpses of that if we get at a little bit of his writing in Proposition 6 of Tractatus. That's uh, straight from the Western Front. And then there are a number of other books by Wittgenstein uh, that came out after his death. Tractatus was the only one published during his lifetime. Uh, Quite a good volume of notes that his students took and uh, notes of his that were in boxes under the bed, basically, that got put together or he had started to put together for books. The second most familiar uh, text from him after Tractatus is Philosophical Investigations. Um, Wittgenstein had said that he thought Tractatus should be published, if he could have his way, as the introduction to philosophical investigations with the note that this is not how-to-do philosophy. Um, because he moved on to a, another turn or another phase. And then the third one, uh, the third major kind of watershed book for Wittgenstein is his book, Uncertainty, uh, which is one of those um, little, very little books of of wisdom that a person can page through and just take the, the aphorisms or the proverbs out of it. So Wittgenstein, we should think of him as an earlier first half of the 20th century philosopher. He's generally considered to be uh, an analytic philosopher, which is shorthand for a certain kind of philosophy done in English, because he did most of his philosophical work, his formal work, uh, at Cambridge in England. What is the poker incident? That sounds intriguing. Oh well, we don't know if there really was an incident. That was p- part of um, part of that book, but in the uh, post World War II years, when Wittgenstein had returned to Cambridge uh, for his second tenure there, in those rather lean years after um, all the damage the Nazis had done to England and to London in particular, uh, there was a a fairly active philosophy club for which Wittgenstein was the faculty advisor. And it seems that Karl Popper, um, who was a philosopher who was a really big name uh, around the 1940s, but we don't know very well today, uh, came loaded for bear to explain to the club at their invitation uh, why Wittgenstein was all wrong in everything he said, um, Popper, we gather, had prepped for Wittgenstein's Tractatus, the book we're going to be talking about today, but Wittgenstein had moved on from that. So <laughs> depending on who you listen to or talk to, I heard one of the authors in person say they never could figure it out, um, Wittgenstein either picked up a poker from the fireplace and threatened Popper with it, or the door just closed kind of loudly behind him as he left uh, in sheer boredom with the way things were going. So. Ah. Um, are anybody interested should take a look at that book themselves. It's a really good read. You described the
0: Tractatus as a philosophical poem. And it's really, it is quite, ama- I mean, it's just a few pages. It's 20 pages or so to, to print out and take a look at. And it's just a matter almost of theses. Um, what, but philosophical poem is a really intriguing way to to, th- to think of it. I, what, what are you getting at there?
1: Well, the first thing I'm getting at is that uh my wife is a published poet so any time philosophy gets compared with poetry I think that's pretty high praise. I I actually am simply borrowing that from Wittgenstein's obituary in the London Times. So I mentioned Tractatus was the only of his writings that had really been published at the time of his death and I think it works this way. So um one thing that that we generally expect from poetry Is I suppose that it's going to be evocative, whereas philosophy tends to be, um, well, analytic and detailed and didactic very often. The other thing we look for in poetry, I would say as a a person who loves poetry, but as a lay person in regard to that craft, is we look for an economy of expression and something from which you get more out of it every time you come back. So if you take the first and the last sentences or propositions from Tractatus, it has that effect, like a very good but rather brief poem. So the first statement um, offered as a true proposition is the world is everything that is the case. Um, very quickly after that, Wittgenstein explains that um, as I'm going to explain, the world is the world is understood by the scientific method. So in other words, it's not the whole world, the whole universe, but the world as we understand it with what we can get at scientifically. And then the last proposition says, whereof one cannot speak, thereof one must be silent. Now, I suggest uh, when I teach this that that means whereof we can't speak scientifically, we should be quiet about scientifically. And then the the uh, function that that last proposition has, it's, it's kind of like a, uh, DC Al Capo, you know, in music, to go back to the beginning <laughs> and repeat it again, or in this case, to think things through again. And many of us who have uh, learned a lot from Tractatus think then that that London Times obituary slogan, that Tractatus is uh, philosophical poetry, fits the bill exactly. Now, you
0: um, you mentioned then that the that the Tractatus is uh, is an epistemological exercise. Um, and that it's and it can't be understood to be a rebuke or at least to stand against the doctrine of scientism, which I think is really an intriguing idea. But for, so I think we've talked about epistemology before. But if you could kind of redefine epistemology, it maybe in in the context of the Tractatus, and then we'll talk about scientism for a bit.
1: Well, sure. So epistemology is the study of knowledge itself in philosophy. It became, about the time of René Descartes, one of the other philosophers we've talked about in our series, um, epistemology became pretty much the be-all and end-all of a lot of philosophy. So before asking what it is that we're studying, there's kind of the question, can we know anything at all? Or can we possibly know anything about the topic we want to know something about? So I usually teach my first-year students that when you think epistemology, think three questions. What can we know? Um, how do we know it? And can we be sure? So in an important respect, as uh, perhaps you're going to mention in the preface already to his book, uh, Wittgenstein says that, you know, really the whole thing that he's up to is to draw a limit or a border to the expressions of what we're able to think. So that's the epistemology part. It's, I'll read the quote here, which is great.
0: The whole sense of the book, uh, this is Wittgenstein from the, from the preface of the Tractatus, the whole sense of the book might be summed up the following words, what can be said at all can be said clearly, and what ca- and what we cannot talk about we must pass over in silence. Uh, and which is the conclusion he makes and then thus the aim of this book is to draw a limit to thought or rather not to thought but to the expression of thought so that i that in fact um and and you're going to have a metaphor for this a little bit later but the drawing a limit to thought that is to what we can talk about uh scientifically uh in the world is is what he's up to now that is why people would understand the tractatus to be against scientism and am i right so scientism would be the idea that um, that everything that is it can be measured this is at least how i like to think of it that that it's kind of a pure materialism if it's not measurable we must uh, assume or know that it does not exist is that a is that a workable definition of scientism
1: well i think that's that's put in a really practical way and, and is quite nice. So, <laughs> I think uh, maybe it would be true in areas of ministry, including um, academic areas, huh? That we all know folks who think that something can't really be considered effective ministry or something can't be considered effective teaching unless it's subject to metric analysis. So, if you can produce um, bar graphs or pie charts, then we could talk about something being real. But if you can't put it into numbers, it doesn't deserve to be talked about. And that—that that is part of scientism. I think the the other half of scientism is what you might refer to as the omnicompetence of the natural sciences. So if you think that um, the natural sciences can tell us everything that is knowable or worth knowing or everything that we need for our lives, I think you're spot on when you say that it it ends up to be some flavor of materialism. Um, So, scientism is an epistemological claim that only scientific knowledge counts as knowledge. And it's this um, unwarranted hope that the scientific method Especially as done by the natural sciences uh, will give us uh, a good life and salvation and everything that we we really need
0: that is I think we could probably spend the whole day talking about scientism because it's so helpful to have a name to it. I was mm-hmm. just reading something the other day i 'm trying to wrap my head around it. maybe you can help it's, so a different book but it it was talking about this um, that's that one of the problems of scientism is it it um, it really assumes that science uh, is omniscient, that it, that it is possible by reducing things to laws to know everything, that, that there's a way that you can have a, uh, a complete knowledge, what, what's called the unified theory. But the odd result of that is that if it's true that there is a unified theory, a, a kind of a natural explanation to everything that happens in the universe, then, then the the presence of that unified theory completely undermines our ability to know it, because we become part of it. So there is no capacity to observe um, the, the 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 natural world apart from the capacity that the natural world and the laws of the universe give to us. Does that
1: does that make any sense? Can you help me with that? Well, I do. You know, I'm still thinking about how you mentioned that. The notion of scientism or the omnicompetence of science is such a, a big thing. Um, I suppose if if we were looking for some um, folk culture, right, some pop culture stuff for that, we might be thinking about um, well, TV uh, series like Fringe, or um, areas that that are brave enough to talk about what science can do, but they end up also showing how it can all go very bad. So what what I feel when I teach um, bioethics, and I think what we probably both feel in uh, pastoral practice or, or concern for actually helping people live fully human lives before the Lord and in Christ, is um, that what scientism leads to presents all sorts of meaninglessness, and ethical harm, right? So if you can reduce everything about the human being to materialistic, metric aspects of us, um, you end up really deflating the whole project of trying to figure out how we can live with and and love our neighbor as ourselves. So I I think I'd like to grant it's a really big thing, but maybe for the sake of Tractatus open with us today, we can... Acknowledge that what we're really looking at is a first serious look at the epistemological side of scientism. In other words, the claim that science will show us everything we need to know simply can't be correct, even on scientific terms. I think it's helpful to even just
0: have the the word scientism because it it helps us give a label to what's probably our common epistemology, um, our kind of optimistic hope in the scientific method. Now, you, you're you going to say, and I'll read again the first um, thesis. Is that the thing to call it, a thesis in the Tractatus?
1: Yeah, thesis is fine, but um, in philosophy, we'd probably use the term proposition. Ah, uh, yes. So okay. it's the reminder that it's a statement to be judged true or false and then argued for.
0: So the first proposition uh, that we have in the Tractatus is going to be a, a limiting proposition, um, in fact, the whole thing is going to be a limiting proposition, but it, it says this, uh, and we'll have this translation also available uh, on our website, uh, mean.org under the Master Metaphors column. It says this, so, the world is all that is the case. So give us a little bit more, uh, kind of unfold that a little bit.
1: Well, sure. So um, I'm just going to mention, too, for our listeners who may want to look this up, that Wittgenstein's German – is also pretty manageable as well as really helpful um, so that that first proposition um just about i guess for for a certain kind of ear just about does its own teaching ist alles was der ist. so um, the world is everything that is the case but the the uh, thing that i would recommend is that we don't think about world as everything that really exists or the creator and creation, or doing metaphysics, um, but that we think of the world in the specially defined sense that Wittgenstein does, I think, throughout Tractatus, and that is the world as understood scientifically. So he actually is at quite a few pains, I think, not to say that that's the whole world, that's the point, but if you look at reality through a scientific lens, that's what we're going to take as the opening proposition: that that scientific world. Let's just see what happens if we say that that world, understood scientifically, is everything that is the case. So throughout Tractatus, in these brief poetic philosophical pages, um, whenever Welt comes up or synonyms for world, it means the world understood through the scientific method.
0: That uh, you you're going to exclude a couple of things. Uh, especially in your note here from that. So God, the soul, ethics, and aesthetics would then be
1: excluded from that scientific world. That's right. Um, and it's it's actually the case that Wittgenstein, in some of his detailed work under Proposition 6, that's the second last or the penultimate um, little unit of Tractatus, he actually says that himself. So if we think about it this way, if you ask what can science teach us or what kind of knowledge about these three topics can science give us if we're talking about God, ethics, and aesthetics. Um, So in terms of God, this may sound a little surprising depending on what a person thinks of as natural knowledge, but um, God is not something you can get at or someone you can get at by the scientific method, as it's usually understood, because that requires biblical revelation. In other words, God has to reveal himself. You don't get it to it by humanly invented scientific thinking. Similarly, um, ethics is something that cannot be handled according to natural science. Now, may I say there that there are all sorts of efforts going on right now since Wittgenstein to do that, I notice that this seems to be the field of the newly emerging field of evolutionary ethics or evolutionary bioethics. Um, and that, that brings some questions of its own with it. But generally, we would say that ethics has to do with values, the value of, of people, for instance. And it's very hard to carve out an understanding of value from science, even the notion of, um, survival of the fittest from some, you know, basic uh, popular version of Darwin, um, that's actually not very scientifically put. Um, and then the matter of aesthetics, that may be less familiar, but the notion of the beautiful and the meaning of it, um, that too, Wittgenstein pointed out, is basically inaccessible by the natural sciences. So here's what he does. Um, Wittgenstein says that we can't get at these items, God, ethics, and aesthetic scientifically, therefore, when we're doing science, we should shut up about this, hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So that's the last proposition again. Whereof one cannot speak, thereof one must be silent. So I'd say, whereof one cannot speak scientifically, for instance, about God or ethics or aesthetics, therefore, one ought to shut up. The, right? you, now if, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead, please. I was going to say, and then the added feature from Wittgenstein is that Wittgenstein does not go on to say, therefore, God doesn't exist, there's no such thing as ethics, and aesthetics is just a made-up superstition. It's rather the case that he very soberly says, we can't get at it by the scientific method, so it can't be said, but it continues to show up in our lives. So these um, items of reality that show up are not handleable, by the scientific method
0: and and that's why he would stand against scientism because scientism would assume that if you can't discover it, measure it, if you can't get to it scientifically, then it doesn't exist. Wittgenstein said say, no, if you can't get to it scientifically, you can't talk about it scientifically, but that's it. There's no um, he's taking the omni out of the this omnicompetence that you mentioned. That's a really great word by the way, omnicompetence. um and he's, uh, so 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 that he's drawing that line, he's going to start. You, you've highlighted some Proposition 6s uh, here which in which this uh, comes up. I'd like to maybe read two of them and maybe try my hand at seeing what he's getting at, uh, and then you can correct me. This is 6371 and 6372. Wittgenstein writes, The whole modern conception of the world is founded on the illusion that the so-called laws of nature are the explanations of natural phenomenon. I, I think that is a, that itself is a phenomenal assertion. And then the next one, 6372, Thus, people today stop at the laws of nature, treating them as something inviolable, uh, unalterable, I suppose, you can't mess with it, just as God and fate were treated in ages past. And in fact, both are right and both are wrong, though, the view of the ancients is clearer, insofar as they had a cl- have a clear and acknowledged terminus, while the modern system tries to make it look as if everything were explained. Um. So, so, uh, is getting after the idea that the laws of nature are a complete or an absolute explanation of all the things that happen. So that if you understand the laws of nature, then you understand every activity. Uh, in in the world, and thus, uh, it, um, this this is what is the, this is the illusion that is putting the kind of um, omniscience in scientism, and and Wittgenstein is saying no, th- this is wrong. You cannot make that leap. It does it it does not follow logically um, that everything that happens uh, can be explained by the laws of nature. Am I am I onto him? Am I sniffing down the right direction?
1: Well, I sure think so. We can be a, a tad pushier on that, too. The So we could make a statement, something like this. Um, the laws of nature have no causal force. So things do not happen in nature ever because of the laws of nature. The laws of nature are our best descriptions to date of the regularity or the regularities that we see in creation, right? So we know actually from the history of modern science that the laws of nature are subject to revision and theoretically to expansion and to contraction. So, um, for instance, uh, if we think about gravity, right, we can talk offhandedly about the law of gravity, but when I let go of a book in front of the classroom, It doesn't fall to the floor because of the law of gravity. It falls to the floor, and uh, I can truly bore and rattle, but at least make sure all my students are awake by doing that repeatedly. And it presumably will fall every time, Uh, but the law is a description of that regularity. The law is not something that makes the regularity happen, right? Um, In science... um, as you know as an interested layperson from outside the natural sciences i think that's actually what a scientist will tell you that the laws of nature are always subject to revision um so they have no causal power and wittgenstein is pointing that out that's why he says that it's an illusion but as you properly pointed out it's that omnicompetence that creeps in right that causes the problem so there's a kind of an illusion If we think that things will always happen in line with the laws of nature, um, in philosophy, that's the difference between deductive and inductive reasoning. Um, Scientific Mm -hmm. reasoning is reasoning Mm -hmm. to a high degree of probability, not with absolute necessity. And then that um, second part from Proposition 6.372 that you mentioned, um, I think bears the emphasis that you gave it. Wittgenstein, matter-of-factly, says, that he thinks the pre-modern people, the ancients, were a bit clearer because when they did talk about God, or in the case of the Greeks, about fate, they actually were endeavoring to talk about the cause of the way things were, whereas we today aren't, but we're pretending we are. <laughs> That's fantastic.
0: Now, um, he continues this argument down in 6.41, which I, I had. I just had a question about this. I was uh, Victicide says this, uh, the sense of the world must lie outside the world. Um, in the world, everything is as it is, as it is, and everything happens as it does happen. It is no value in it; no value exists. If it did exist, it would have no value. If there is any value that uh, that does have value, it must lie outside the whole sphere of what is happening, and is the case. Now, so this this little sentence: the sense of the world must lie outside the world. Um, I, I thought that was an important one, but I didn't actually know what he was saying there.
1: Well, my suggestion, Brian, would be to to try on that definition of the world that I think Wittgenstein is operating with, and that is the world is understood scientifically. So the sense of the world understood scientifically must lie outside the world understood scientifically. There's a, a kind of a brief historical interruption that we could do there, and that. That is, um, I know enough to mention this and say one or two general things about it, but, um, there's Gadel's incompleteness theorem. So back in the first half, the early part of the first half of the 20th century, the mathematician Kurt Gadel demonstrated that in order for the axioms of math to be the case, that is to be true and to work, you you cannot avoid bringing in assumptions from outside the study of mathematics. So um, unless you've got a math degree I don't know about, let's just kind of skate over that and take it that this is a fairly well-established thing in the mathematical and scientific community. So um, what, what you cannot get in the world understood scientifically is an understanding of value or even the value of the whole thing, so too um, the scientific method doesn't deliver value, it doesn't take account of value, and yet value keeps coming up, showing up in everyday life. So so this would be back to uh, ethics and aesthetics,
0: I mean, how can you say something is beautiful and something is ugly, or something is good or something is bad? the, 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 those are impossible things to say scientifically.
1: You, science, science won't allow that kind of value judgment. Is that the, is that the idea? Yes, um, and yet we're not willing to give up on that. And in fact, we can't do the scientific stuff without that. So um, Prop six decimal 6.42, the next major sentence after what you read for us, says, so too it is impossible for there to be propositions of ethics. I would take that scientific stuff. Propositions can express nothing that is higher. So the deal would be that if you're going to limit the statements we can make to those that can be handled by the scientific method, there's not even a way to determine which of the propositions are more valuable to work at, much less to get at the high value of making ethical judgments In human life, as we live it,
0: this would be standing straight against that idea of evolutionary ethics, then, or any sort of materialistic. Because, so survival the fit you say, survival the fittest, and you say, well, so what? What makes survival better than not survival? What what makes anything better than anything else? What makes one action better or worse than another? And there becomes, if all you have is science and nothing outside of it, then there's no place to be able to make that judgment.
1: I think that's true. So the the uh, Darwinian or, or sort of popular Darwinian statement that you mentioned um, about the survival of the fittest gets understood only in terms of values, right? So if if you watch it closely, if you want to ask what the fittest is, it's simply, merely, and nothing more than that which happens to have survived. If you asked what survived... It's nothing especially wonderful. It's just what happens to have been fit to survive. So there's no, um, there's no weight to that statement at all. And then the, the logical question is, well, so what then? Why are we bothering about this? Why, why does it matter even to make that proposition as a statement for us to consider? If there is no value, there actually can't be any scientific statements either. But Wittgenstein tends to get, you know, just very obsessive about the epistemology and to the minds of some of us doesn't go ahead and, and give those obvious examples. But then that's another mark of, of why it would be poetry, right? So there's a lot of, of um, obvious thinking for us to be doing on our own once we've been given uh, this philosophical poem.
0: This, uh, a couple of um, propositions down, so I'm looking at um, 6.431, uh, the, the reality of death comes into the conversation, and so a couple of propositions about death, uh, Wittgenstein writes, so too at death, the world does not alter, but comes to an end, and then the next, uh, 6.4311, uh, death is not an event in life. We do not live to experience death. If we take eternity to mean not infinite temporal duration, but timelessness, then eternal life belongs to those who live in the present. Our life has no end in just the way in which our visual field has no end. And then the, um, a couple of more there, uh, a reading at the end of uh, six four three one two. The solution of the riddle of life in space and time lies outside space and time. It's certainly not the solution of any problems of natural science that is required. Um, so, so what? So death is playing a role in his thinking here. Um, but why? I mean, what is the epistemological question or problem that death would bring to Wittgenstein?
1: Well, you know, first the reason that death is coming up at all for Wittgenstein is because he is writing Tractatus in the thick. Of World War One, so we we actually do know that Wittgenstein was in um, one of the um, Austrian battalions that took the highest number of casualties in all of World War One. Um, what I've read indicates that it's because they were just horribly led; uh, their leadership just uh, threw men by the by the scores and the hundreds into the um, machinery of the weapons that were against them, you know, as you, you hear so often in World War I. So Wittgenstein is actually thinking about death an awful lot. We know from uh, some of his diaries that uh, a couple of these particular propositions under Proposition 6, some of the subpoints, were exactly, in are exactly in the wording that he had written in his own journal for the day while he was in the trenches. So that's one reason that he's thinking about death. I think that he's writing about death in this little philosophical gem because death is one of those things that can be said only in a certain very unsatisfactory way scientifically. So if we're going to talk about um, the world understood scientifically and death, all we really know is that it comes to an end.
0: Hmm.
1: And, and even at that, I think there's the invitation there since he doesn't say no, he just says it, it does, right? We're kind of invited to ask whether we really know that and that there would be a biological termination to the human being. We get that. But as to the question whether the human being continues as a person after death, the scientific method has to shut up, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So there, there's nothing to be offered there. Um, that suggests that if you use the scientific method in this omnicompetent way to tell people there is no such thing as life after death, what you really should do is ask, but do you know that? Right? Do you know that scientifically? How can you know that scientifically? And uh, generally people don't feel they have to answer that. But Wittgenstein thinks they do. So you could say death and the intimation of immortality keep on showing up in our lives. It showed up in Socrates' life, for instance. Um, but it can't be handled scientifically. So, for goodness sakes, I would add, don't use science to make up your decisions about how to live this life, ethics, with a view to being right to face the afterlife. Because science can't even talk one way or the other about the afterlife. I've got a theory
0: I want to run by you, which I so we another pastor and I went a couple of years ago to the Denver area atheist group, and we were sitting there, and um, and one of the things we kept bringing up to them was the was the reality of death, and we said, well, you know, what do you think death is? And they, you know, of course, death is death. You go, you just dissolve or biodegrade or whatever happens to your molecules when you die. That's it. And um, and I said, well. How are you going to feel when your mom dies? And every single person in that room said that they would be absolutely crushed. In fact, I remember one one of the guys saying, "Well, I cannot explain this, but I know when my mother dies, I'm going to sit in my room in the dark for a week and mourn." And he says, "I know it doesn't make any sense because I know that that's just, it is what it is, you know, but I'll be crushed by it." And I, and I think that the this common human experience that tells us that death is bad has to be fought against by the materialist, by the scientism, and that that's one of the why the 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 philosophy of evolution has a sticking power because it's able to make something good come out of the obviously bad thing of death. In other words, the survival of the fittest makes death a mechanism for things getting better, and so it can it can bring some sort of soothing to the conscience because it it wrestles with
1: with the problem of death. What do you think about that idea? Well, I think it's a good point to pause and say this is another reason why um, we as parents or grandparents of children, or looking back on our own educations, should be filled with a righteous indignation at the vast amount of historical writing we were not given to read. We're really talking about the stubbornness of the Stoics and the Epicureans, aren't we? So um, that's the only time; those are the only basic options that you've you've got in philosophy for denying death. And I, I would notice that just as scientism or science is incompetent, impotent to give us any help on that question of life after death. Just as that doesn't stop people today from making proclamations in books and elsewhere, um, it didn't stop the Stoics and Epicureans from teaching actual, immortal, created and redeemed human beings not to believe that there was life after death until, uh, as we know from Acts 17, Paul showed up in the Stoic and Epicurean faculty meeting in Athens and pointed out the datum of Christ rising from the dead. There's at, when
0: we get to um, the propositions uh, 6 5, there's a, a number of particularly interesting ones here. So, I mean, maybe work quickly through a couple of them. Uh, he talks about skepticism. This is 6.51. Wittgenstein writes skepticism is not irrefutable, but obviously nonsensical when it tries to raise doubts where no questions can be asked. For doubt can exist only where a question exists a question only where an answer exists and an answer only where something can be said. So he, so Wittgenstein says, look, it, you can only have an answer if you can speak to it. You can only have a question if you can have an answer. And you can only have doubt where you have a question so that the whole thing is ridiculous. If there's a question, there's an answer to it. And skepticism as a philosophical program is simply undone just here with one sentence, really.
1: I take it that um, Wittgenstein is talking about what we, what I sometimes call hardcore skepticism, or sometimes it's referred to as Pyrrhonic skepticism, uh, the kind of thing that um, Pilate seems to give voice to when at um, God's trial on Good Friday, he says, "You know, what is truth?" And he's not looking for an answer. There can also be a healthy skepticism where we try to figure things out and talk together and and read and so forth. So hardcore skepticism uh, is not irrefutable. You don't have to bother to refute it. It's obviously nonsensical if it's raising doubts where no questions can be asked. So it's not appropriate if we're operating within a natural science framework to ask the questions that we know, sense, feel, or intuit that we most need to ask. So how ought we to live? It's really not a question that can be asked in a natural science world. Um, Do I continue to exist after death is not a question that can be asked in the scientific world. And what does God think about me? Am I in uh, a relationship with him that will guarantee I'll be with him forever and ever in eternity? Um, that's not something that can be handled skeptically by science or within science. It just can't even be brought up. And, of course, that's a fine characteristic of the limits or the limitation or the limiting condition for the scientific method. It doesn't follow from that that the question can't be answered if you have a bigger, better language or epistemology.
0: uh, uh, So kind of following on that, uh, 6.52, Wittgenstein says, we feel that even when all possible scientific questions have been answered, the problems of life remain completely untouched. So that, um, so again, this is drawing the limits. Uh, and then, and then this—this this is 6522, 6.522. There are indeed things that cannot be put into words. They make themselves manifest. They are what is mystical. So he's saying that that. That you know, science can do what it can and collect all, all of the information it can possibly collect, and then these questions of life, um, are are there's, you know, there's they haven't even begin being been asked really, but then there are these realities. I suppose the ethical and the and the and the and things of God and the soul that cannot be spoken of scientifically, but they will constantly become, as you mentioned before they'll constantly show up. They'll constantly be part of our conversations. They'll constantly be part of our art and our and our writing and even our thinking and our dreams. Um, these non-scientific realities will constantly um, be there and, and so we cannot deny their existence simply because we cannot measure them.
1: Yes. How's that for a, a nice, sane view of things? That the scientific method could be very powerful for that which it is competent to address, but that for the major questions of life, um, those questions can't even be framed within the scientific worldview, and yet they keep, what, haunting us, um, erupting from the floorboards, talking to us, um, they, they keep on showing up. So now what? This is where then we get to Wittgenstein's
0: conclusion, um, which is, uh, what, and this is really what our our master metaphor is, it's simply seven, no explanation. What we cannot speak about, we must pass over in silence. And again, uh, to under, be understood, what we cannot speak about scientifically, we must be quiet about scientifically. I, I think um, there's kind of... Three different things that I want to talk about, uh, Dr. Schulz, and I, I'm not sure we, if we have time to cover all three. The one is to, for you to give your picture of uh, measuring the ocean by walking the shore as a metaphor for understanding what he's doing epistemologically. Uh, the, then the, the second is to see how this kind of plays itself out in our ethical conversations. And then the third thing is I'd like to uh, reflect with you about um, what the incarnation of Jesus does to this whole thing. In other words, when when God puts Himself um, into the place where He can be touched and and measured and listened to, um, then can Wittgenstein speak of that? In other words, when, that we confess not only God in the abstract, but also God act, acting in history. But what if we maybe? What if we start about with your metaphor of um, mapping the ocean by walking the island?
1: Sure. So this is um, would. What probably be a better candidate for the title of our metaphor for this interview overall. Um, it comes from a personal letter that Wittgenstein wrote, and uh, he he tends to say things like this. So I included a couple of these quotes on the notes that um, you're posting for our listeners on whatdoesthismean.org. But here's a just one quote from Wittgenstein, a letter. My work consists of two parts the one presented here, plus all that I have not written. And it is precisely this second part, what I haven't written, that is the important one. So um, Wittgenstein talked in a letter about thinking of this project in Tractatus this way, where he said, um, imagine ourselves as people who dwell on an island. The whole human race is on the island and our major task in life is to map the ocean now in this little metaphor the ocean is going to stand for god though you could also think about god ethics and aesthetics but i'll i'll just say primarily mostly and mainly god um it's also uh, i found from doing this over the years it's really important to remind us that you don't get to use any geosynchronous satellite viewpoints or any flyovers You really can't afford even to look at this the way I might sketch it out on the board for a class, you know, from the top down. You have to put your eyeball right on the surface. So you put your eyeball right on the island and seriously imagine us all on that island. Now, we have to map the ocean, but the best we can do, the farthest we can go with our thinking is as far as we go. So we walk the entire island. You go this way, I'll go that way. You go 90 degrees different, you go you know, over here, so that ultimately all of us report back and we make a map, say. Now, all we're going to come up with is I think we can walk, you know, 572 steps this direction, uh, 850 steps this direction. We're actually going to come up with a map of the coastline of our island, and we're not able to think a single step farther beyond that. Hmm. So um, presumably we can map that island thoroughly and that island then will stand for the limit to our thinking or the limit to the expression of our thinking as human beings. Remember then that the project was to map the ocean. So what can we say about the ocean? That's right, nothing. Um, (laughs) You You know, we get so far as to saying we can't get that far. So you can't, on the one hand, you can't say, the ocean is like this because you can't get into the ocean. On the other hand, you can't say there is no ocean out there because, well, you haven't been out there. You can't get out there. So whether uh, you want to be a theist and talk about how you can thoughtfully describe the ocean or whether you want to be an atheist and talk about how there's no such thing as the ocean, either one of those is disabled. There's simply no way... To do anything more. You can just say we can't get that far. Now, Wittgenstein doesn't do this, but keeping in mind that he said the most important thing is what I have not written, I think I'm being faithful to his approach and just being a good reader and student, I would say take that same picture of mapping the island by walking it and this time imagine that the ocean comes onto the island. Now, if you want to, you can think of it as a tsunami, right? Like um, C.S. Lewis's depiction of the incarnation of Jesus, of God in Jesus, as being the great invasion. Uh, but think about God coming onto the island in the person of Jesus. Now, what we can know is everything that we can get from listening to him and talking with him and watching him and seeing what he does. And now, we surely don't know the entire ocean but we do know everything about the the ocean that the ocean wants us to know. So I find that to be, um, that that second part uh, especially, to be a really helpful uh, metaphor for what we mean when we talk about the theology of the cross or what we talk about as God's biblical revelation to us. Now we know, and uh, what we know has been given to us, and I don't mean this flippantly, thank God that he did step onto our island that's right i think it's only when we limit our
0: understanding of scientific or human knowledge that we that there now becomes a place for revelation and this is part of the problem with scientism is it says that with the your word omnicompetence or om, omniscience of natural law and science there now becomes no no rule no no place uh in our epistemology for having a revealed knowledge of god but if you set the limits then, then the floods can come, I suppose. And these floods, uh, well, we have the promise of these floods. Uh, the, the Lord says, My word, uh, like the rain <coughs> that goes forth and waters the earth and causes it to bring forth seed, so my word goes forth from my mouth and it will not return to me empty or void. I think we're, we've come to the end. I want to make sure that the listeners um, go and check out the notes because you've written, you, using Wittgenstein's rule, uh, here when to shut up uh, Tractatus seven you've taken on the question of um, a, a physician assisted uh, death uh, as a response to suffering and you've pointed out that um, that doctors cannot speak of the soul and of judgment and this sort of thing you've really it's really quite incredible it's a beautiful little article and we'll post it up there uh, for people to read um, uh, and enjoy that and let us know if uh, if that's helpful as well. Um, Dr. Schulz, thank you. Uh, any any last thoughts on Wittgenstein that uh, we should uh, make before we leave the conversation?
1: Well, I, you've just led us through the um, the major points that I would wanted dearly to share with our listeners. I I think I'd also point out that uh, Wittgenstein deserves to be read before he gets dismissed. So um, it's a little bit like Bonhoeffe. You know, people who haven't read him come up with some of the oddest out-of-context understandings of what he said and then feel that he's not even a Christian, much less a, a reputable Lutheran thinker, which couldn't be farther from the truth. In Wittgenstein's case, um, some of the things that we have from his students are when Wittgenstein seems to be criticizing various biblical doctrines like Judgment Day, but it actually turns out when you read him that he's criticizing people's shallow understanding or Uh, wimpy adherence to the biblical doctrines. And I think that uh, Wittgenstein, um, who gives every indication of having been a Christian during his life, is also a very uh, good 20th century or 21st century now Socrates for many of us to be pushed back into our Bibles. And uh, at the same time that we see how scientism is absolutely not justified or warranted in its claims, we have to be pushed back in the Bible to be Uh, genuinely sure and genuinely immersed in uh, the doctrines of Christ that we say we believe. Wittgenstein's helpful for that, too.
0: That's great. Whereof one cannot speak, thereof one must be silent. That is true for the scientist, but God knows everything, so he can always speak. That rule does not apply to him, and he speaks. And when he speaks, it is of his love and his mercy and his forgiveness And in that, we rejoice. Dr. Schultz, thank you so much for the conversation. Uh, One more next week. uh, We'll be talking about um, Cyril's Chinese Room and uh, and what that means for um, modern ethics.